Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 194. I'm producer Gregory Haddock. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to take a moment to remind you to please consider making a donation for our Patreon pledge. At patreon.com slash wildlenscollective, you have the chance to truly support this show in a very fundamental, real-world way. And we're really hoping that if we meet our goal, that we'll be able to increase the production value and the breadth and depth of the way that we analyze different topics on this podcast. We're already one of the top contenders for conservation podcasts that are available. With some additional funding, we would be able to do incredible stuff. So I'd just like to remind you once more, patreon.com slash wildlenscollective. Your gift means all the world. Thank you. If you haven't yet, please consider sending us a voice note to info at wildlensinc.org. Super easy. Just pull up your app on your phone, you record that message, and then you just go ahead and share it with an email correspondent, info at wildlensinc.org. We really want to hear what you have to say, and we will definitely listen to and respond to every single one of those. You're also welcome to send us a regular email to that address as well. On this episode of Eyes on Conservation, I spoke with author and environmental historian Bathsheba DeMuth. DeMuth is an assistant professor at Brown University who specializes in the intersection between humans, ecosystems, ideas, and history. The work that I do as an environmental historian is broadly focused on the North American and Russian Arctic and particularly the relationships between people and animals and people and ecosystems more broadly over the past 200 years or so. We talked over Skype while DeMuth was in Fairbanks as the professor was performing research for her new book. Her first book is titled Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Straits. NPR called it a quote, deeply studied, deeply felt book that lays out a devastating but complex history of change notes what faces us now and dares us to imagine better, end quote. As we proceed and get into this interview, I will note that I spoke with Professor DeMuth while she was at the university library, so it can be a little loud in the background at times. It's a busy place. I can promise you, however, that this will be one of the most compelling and interesting accounts of the history of whaling that you have ever heard. You, you look so cold. Yeah, yes, it's a little chilly up here. <laughs> uh, what's the what's the weather like right now? Um, it's actually a pretty balmy day today. It's about twenty degrees. Um, it was about fifty degrees colder here last week. Oof, oof. Yeah, I draw the line at pretty much anything around ten. <laughs> just can't do it. It's just not in it for me. Of all the things that makes this whole conversation that much more interesting. DeMuth was actually drawn to the Arctic in her young adult life and even lived in the Yukon for two years. And yes, doing all the things that you're imagining right now. Tracking bears, hunting caribou, fishing salmon, and yes, even husky mushing. You know, dog sledding. And no, I'm not making that up. She's that for real. Your your first journeys out there, um, if, if I understand right, was you're running a dog sled? Yeah, so when I was uh, 18, I decided to take a gap year, as we now call them, although they weren't really called that then, um, and went to a little community north of the Arctic Circle in the Yukon Territory uh, to be a dog handler, which is basically an apprentice to somebody who has a dog team. 
and I knew nothing about sled dogs when I moved up there and I was 18. So I thought I knew something about things, but I really didn't. Um, and that was my first introduction to the Arctic. Okay. And how long you said you did that for two years? Yes. Do you, yeah, a little bit. do you still remember how to do it? I mean, I, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. Um, except in this particular case, you're working with, um, dogs. So you can remember how to do sort of the physical pieces of it, but, um, you also need to have a relationship with the animals you're working with. So I'm sure that if I had a team and I spent a lot of time with them, it would, it would all come back because I would be making that relationship with the dogs. But, um, unlike a bicycle, you can't just grab one and, and go. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you don't have to get to know your bike first. Right. <laughs> I probably ended up working up here because my dad read me too much Jack London when I was a kid. So, um, there, there's definitely a literary connection in there. Now, I could do a really poor job of basically giving it a synopsis of the book, or um, I'm sure it would be much more articulate coming from you. Um, tell us a little bit more about the uh, Soviet whaling, um, and, and more specifically, what you found so fascinating uh, about that topic. Yeah, so the book that I published just this past fall um, called Floating Coast looks at basically the, the past 200 years or so along the Bering Strait, both in the Russian Arctic and in the U.S. Arctic. It's a, it's a two-country history, but because it's an environmental history, in some ways it's a history of no country because it's looking at processes and, and animals that um, don't really match onto na nation-state borders. And the, the, the project is kind of bookended, no pun intended, by kind of two episodes of large-scale whaling, the first one being in the 19th century, for kind of market whalers, capitalist whalers, most of them coming from New England, in fact, some of them from where I now live in Providence, who are coming up to kill bowhead whales for oil, for lamp oil, mostly. And then the book closes with a couple of chapters about um, Soviet whaling in the 20th century, which in many ways is just the socialist analog to the to the capitalist kind of whaling in that it is um, quite excessive. It, it kills whales far outside their capacity to to reproduce and keep keep up with the demand. And and those kind of frames of the book in some ways show the things that I found really interesting about this part of the world um, as a historian who's interested in the ways that people's ideas influence the environments they live in and vice versa. Which is that it's a it's a place that has a very similar ecology on both sides of the Bering Strait. Um, you know, if, if you drop down on the Chukchi Peninsula or the Seward Peninsula, the Chukchi Peninsula is in Russia and the Seward Peninsula is in Alaska, you can't really tell one from the other, right? Unless you know the place extremely well, because the, the flora and the fauna and the geology are all really comparable. But of course, in the 20th century, it gets split by these two big economic ideologies that imagine each other in opposition, which is you know, capitalism and, and socialism. So it's kind of a natural experiment to see how these two ways of um, managing environments in some sense that the, that the Soviet Union and the United States brought with them interact with Arctic species. And in the case of whales, they do it very similarly, which is more or less trying to kill every whale they possibly can. Yeah, it's it, like it's kind of shocking, um, especially when you talk about like as a concern of how many whales uh, are being impacted or what that's doing to the ecosystem comes up that the answer kind of always came back to, well, don't worry, technology will save us from that or will deliver a positive outcome. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so this was one of the really interesting commonalities I found between, you know, two groups of whalers who were operating 
you know, 100 years apart from each other or more and in two extremely different cultural and economic contexts um, is that the, the kind of 19th century, you know, Moby Dick style tall ship whalers. Call me Ishmael, an ordinary seaman before the mast on the good ship Pequot, bound out of Nantucket on Christmas Day of the year 1844 on a thousand days voyage were very aware that when they entered a kind of new population of whales in a piece of the ocean that they hadn't um, been hunting in before, that they would, they called it whaling it out or fishing it out, that they would kill off an enormous number of the animals that were that were available locally, um, and that they were doing this and getting further and further from home. So they're, they're aware and using the word extinction by the end of the 19th century. But at the same time, as they're talking about extinction, they're basically saying, well, if we put in place some technological um, improvements, if our ships get faster, um, if we're more able to navigate around the sea ice, we'll be able to still catch these whales. And there was this kind of belief that because whales were really intelligent, and all of the whalers you know, knew this and, and talk about this in, in detail, um, that there were more whales, they were just shy or had gotten smart and were hiding in new places. Um, so there's actually a couple of lines in Moby Dick where Melville talks about, you know, the whales are just hiding behind the Arctic sea ice. Oh. And then, you know, after the Second World War, the Soviet Union sort of follows the same pattern in that they have very sophisticated um, marine biology by that point. Um, in many ways, the the research that Soviet marine biologists are doing is ahead of what's happening in the United States, particularly when it comes to studying the ways that whales are social animals and able to communicate vocally with each other. Um, they're, they're way ahead of what's happening um, in English-speaking countries. But at the same time, is, and, and they're also quite aware that, that the populations of whales are dropping, but at the same time, they're convinced that as long as they just kind of keep putting more technology online, they're going to be able to keep killing whales. But what, um, what is the logic behind that? That that's the part I don't understand. Is that if they're they're already being removed from the ocean at such an alarming rate, what what is the what was the argument that technology would somehow fix that or or prolong it or allow that to continue? I think some of it came not from direct observation because the the direct observation of whalers and and biologists alike was telling them that the whale populations were going down. But it really came from a kind of faith in the leading economic doctrine of the day. Um, and I think it's something that you can see influence not just whaling, but but other ways in which human societies make choices is that um, the ways that we imagine economies working also are ways that we imagine the future working. And they're kind of faith statements that if you're organizing your economy the right way, everything can just keep growing and growing, you know, kind of infinitely, and particularly human consumption can keep growing. And I think that for both the, the, the kind of Yankee whalers in the 19th century, and in a, in a slightly different way for Soviet whalers in the 20th century, there was a lot of faith put in the, the kind of system in which they operated. Um, so even if they're getting kind of direct feedback from the world that they're operating in saying, you know, you're killing too many whales, um, at the end of the day, it was, it was easier to imagine that that wasn't true. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, imagine so. Did you? What, what was the starkest contrast that you encountered when comparing Soviet whaling to market whaling or the capitalist whaling? The biggest contrast. Yeah, or like, what were some of the stark uh, differences in in the culture around whaling? Yeah. Um, 
So some of it is is technological that the the nineteenth century whaling is done mostly in wooden ships and is done um, by crews that are often gone for years at a time with very little knowledge as to whether or not they're going to earn any money at all from from the work that they're doing, which is really hard and kind of nasty work often. And the Soviet ships, by the time they're whaling um, in the later part of the 20th century, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, they're on these very technologically sophisticated factory whaling fleets where you have sort of a central factory ship um, and a bunch of catcher boats that, that actually do the killing of the whales. And then the, the factory ship picks them up and pulls them to pieces. And those were kind of much more comfortable places to live. Um, they had, you know, heating and air conditioning and refrigerators and were putting in and sometimes when you know the soviet fleet was going to antarctica they would stop in new zealand and you know places like that that were were interesting and exotic um so it was a different kind of social role often for the whalers between the, the two countries but i think another big difference is that the the way in which soviet whaling one of the rewards of Soviet whaling for Soviet whalers was the ability to kind of participate in the socialist system and feel like you were really building this larger, important communal world that that communism was supposed to be when the Soviet Union actually kind of brought it into into existence. And that's that's less the case. Every now and then I'll run into an American whaler who talks about, you know, doing something for the glory of his country, and they're almost all he. Not so often, right? They're often doing it because it's a decent way to earn some money, they think, when they start. Um, they're doing it sometimes to, to run away from situations that are really unpleasant. But it's it's a little less tied to kind of national spirit than the, the Soviet version was. Yeah. Did you f- Do you think that that was unique to whaling within Soviet culture? Or was that just Soviet culture reflecting through whaling? I think it was, it's a little bit of both. I think that there is a way, I came to really appreciate when I was doing the research for this book, the degree to which many people in the Soviet Union, particularly in the early years, were deeply committed to the kind of ethical principles that were supposed to underwrite the Soviet project. The, the idea that you were really going to make a world that was more equal for people. Um, one that was, because it was more equal, was going to allow much more freedom than people had when they were working under capitalism. And of course, this dream goes awry in many obvious and well-known ways. But, you know, there was a sense that this was a country that was trying to build a, a completely new and morally superior way of life. And it's not that there aren't elements of that in the U.S., but I think the degree to which that project is not visited completely upon all citizens is also something that has been very clear in the U.S. for a long time, partly because of the history of enslaving people, um, partly because of the history of expropriating land from indigenous people, um, and that the Soviet Union was attempting to kind of transcend all of those systems in a way um, that people really believed at the beginning. And in, in some ways, the whalers were holdouts and that they believed in it somewhat longer than, than other folks did. Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, maybe some part of that at least had to do with the the, the way whalers were very well uh, compensated within Soviet um, Russia. Do you think that that was the, the case at all, or that that was one of those reasons that it kind of maybe held on to that spirit a little bit longer than maybe some other um, uh, types of work or, or lines of labor? I think so. Um, one of the, the whalers that I quote in the book actually— you know, he in his 
in his kind of memoirs after the Soviet Union has collapsed, someone asks him, you know, why did you keep whaling? And he said, well, you know, it was communism. Like it actually existed on those whale ships because people were well paid. Um, it was whaling, you know, if you're a small human being trying to kill a whale, even if you have a lot of technology, it's almost automatically a communal endeavor. You have to work with a bunch of other people. So it it kind of lent itself very nicely to, you know, Vladimir Lenin's ideas about what work should be, that it should be something that you do with others um, for the uplift of everyone. And, you know, whalers tended to be really well fed compared to other folks in the Soviet Union and had lots more consumer opportunities because of the ports that they were visiting. Um, so I think in, in many ways, it did look more like the socialist dream than if you were working in a, you know, factory somewhere just in central Russia or something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. So I mean, because the way you, you, you describe it, it really is a lot of glory to be that person. And in fact, you say that the person who actually ran the harpoon gun really had like a huge play in that or really had um, more of like a hero status than among even oh, the ship, right? Yeah, you could like win win medals and be on the front page of the national newspaper. And no, it was a pretty cool. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you speak a little bit more to how the Soviet plan involved whaling? Like, why why whaling? What um, you do talk about the crisis of calories during World War II, but was there any other factors that um, allowed whaling to really take off the way it did? So th this question is one that that really haunted me as I was writing the book, um, and then in some ways I don't feel like I fully satisfactorily answered it. In part because I think a lot of the the real answers where you know folks who are high up in the Soviet uh, political system would answer these questions are are classified um, or are labeled in some way that I have not been able to find them. And in part, that's because the Soviet whaling program at some point after the Second World War and after the founding of the International Whaling Commission starts whaling essentially illegally. It starts breaking its its quota with the International Whaling Commission. And so the, the whole program becomes somewhat administered by the KGB and is somewhat secret. So there, there are files about this that I, I know that I haven't seen and probably will never see that get into some of the nitty gritty of this. But the things that I can kind of put together from the files that I have been able to, to look at, I think one of the appeals of whaling was that it was a place where, particularly by the 60s and 70s, as the Soviet economy is starting to slow down and not look as robust in comparison to economies in the West, it's a place where they really are ascendant. They're good at whaling. They're whaling more than, than Western countries. And so it kind of enables a sort of national pride about besting, besting the capitalists at their own game in many ways, because whaling had not been a Russian activity really until the 1930s. So I think that's some of the motivation. I think for some of the whalers who are in the Pacific in particular, it actually is associated with the really long history of Americans whaling in Russian waters, and that it's almost a way of taking back what folks who grew up in the Far East saw as having been robbed from them. So the, you know, the Yankee whalers who were often, you know, whaling in Russian imperial territorial waters were gone by that point, and America wasn't whaling at all. But it was a way of kind of taking over the space that had once been so firmly capitalist. So I think that's part of it. And I think it was also a place where, you know, the kind of ecological impacts of whaling were not something that Soviet citizens had to deal with directly. And this is an era when the Soviet Union is really starting to grapple with what it means to live in an advanced industrial society 
where you don't move the, the kind of worst and dirtiest parts of industry into other countries. So in the 60s and 70s, just as the United States is you know, passing the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and, and really starting to regulate industrial production, it's also moving a lot of the really environmentally dangerous industry to Southeast Asia, to China, to other places around the world. And the Soviet Union doesn't do that. So most of their industrial dirt is at home, essentially. And whaling is right. a place where they, they can sort of do it without having to deal with the repercussions. And of course, that that is very much conjecture on my part as a historian, because I don't have a document that says, you know, this is great because we don't have to deal with the fact that this is, you know, really changing ecosystems the world over. But it must have been nice to have an industry where that was not becoming a pressing concern um, and wasn't causing citizens to be concerned about the world that they were living in, um, as was increasingly happening by the 70s and 80s. That Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, way to look at it that I had never crossed my mind before. Um, but like really um, a detachment from the 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 bad byproducts or the the terrible culture subculture that 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 creates you talk about the alienation of labor i don't know if i don't know is there, is there anything you'd like to talk about the the alienation of labor or anything you'd like to speak to on that behalf um i, I think we kind of answered some of that uh but maybe not in, in 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 those terms yeah i think one of the things i found um there's a lot of ironies often when you write about the soviet union and I think one of the ones I found the most poignant in this book is that, you know, the whole idea behind creating the Soviet Union was to, to transcend this alienation of labor. The fact that when you do work, you're not doing it on your own terms, that the, the value of your labor is taken by someone else for the most part, and you're not able to decide the kind of work that you want to do. Um, and these are the conditions of capitalism that, you know, Marx critiqued and that Lenin said, you know, the Soviet Union is going to overcome them. And, you know, it, the the Soviet whalers, there's this aspect in which they are national heroes and are earning great salaries, but there's also this undercurrent in a lot of their memoirs and accounts and, and logbooks and things like that, that they are also really disturbed by the kind of work they're doing because they are, you know, killing these large animals with, with which they become very familiar. They learn that they're, you know, social beings, that they are relating to each other, that they try to protect each other when they're under threat. Um, that mother whales will go to enormous lengths to try to protect their infants. And so they're, you know, they're disturbed. They find the work um, difficult. There's kind of a, a moral wound aspect to, to what they're doing that is alienating and doesn't have any space in the kind of official Soviet doctrine to be expressed, right? It's kind of under the surface of yeah. all the heroism and the production. So it's deeply alienating. And it's, you know, there's this sort of sad irony that this state that set itself up for exactly the purpose of getting rid of that kind of alienation was so focused on production for human purposes that it ignored the places where the people kind of on the front lines of that production were actually having experiences that might have caused them to draw back and say, you know, no, we shouldn't be doing this. Well, yeah, and, uh, the comment you make from one of the whalers that it's a good thing that whales don't scream because yeah. I, I couldn't do this work. How was it? How does it, what was that quote? Yeah, he said something, I'd have to, to read it directly, but it was something along the lines of, you know, if, if whales screamed, it would have been impossible to carry on um, because, you know, the, it was bad enough as it was, but if there had been an auditory piece to it, would it have been unbearable? Yeah. Yeah, that's 
That's a pretty chilling quote. Now, you've had a chance. You've gone to Russia to um, look at some of these archives and dig through some of this information. Uh, you've unearthed and, and looked at materials that haven't surfaced um, probably in, in decades and decades, certainly things that haven't been seen since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, relating back and discussing um, some of the ledgers, the different ledgers that were held by some of these ships uh, regarding counts. Um, what were some of the more shocking things that you found? And, and, and what were some ways that you you personally uncovered that you saw that, if not the KGB, at least the, the government of the, of the Soviet Union um, had tried to cover up? Is there anything that you can point to specifically? Yeah, I think the um, a part of what I found shocking about it. And in some ways, I'm not the only researcher to have uncovered this, that there's there's other folks who were kind of simultaneously working on this Soviet whaling question and what the scale of it was, was, you know, part of what I found shocking was just how many whales they killed in excess of the International Whaling Commission rules. And the International Whaling Commission rules were essentially standards set by the industry. So these were not conservative estimates about how many whales could be killed um, and there were a lot of discussions within the International Whaling Commission by biologists about the fact that the, the whale quotas were too high. Um, but if they were lowered too much, the, the fear was that everyone would leave the IWC and there would be no control at all. Um, so it's kind of that classic, you know, how do you get a bunch of people to, to, to manage themselves if there's not actually some sort of outside pressure? And the Soviet Union just sort of ignored the quotas and falsified their records pretty pretty freely in order to, to keep killing whales um, in excess. And that was, you know, there, there was just something so calculated about that piece of it. Um, it wasn't sort of, we accidentally slid into killing more whales. You had to keep another set of log books. You had to, you know, make sure that the KGB was handing the right set of books to the, um, to the International Whaling Commission versus the ones that, that ended up in an archive in Vladivostok. Um, so, that was that was really kind of a surprise. And it was surprising in part because it's not, this wasn't kind of universally the case with Soviet environmental policy, like more or less simultaneously with the whaling program ramping up, the Soviet Union is, um, is actually signing on to and helping to develop uh, protections for polar bears and for Pacific walruses, for Atlantic walruses, um, for kind of other marine species in particular, and so it's not it's not a unilateral thing. It's a kind of a particular one um, that I found surprising. Eyes on conservation, assemble! We want to hear from you. We make these shows because we're passionate about the subject matter. We care about what happens to these animals. We care about what happens to these ecosystems, what happens to the planet, and each other too. But we know that you do too. We also make these shows because of you. The Eyes on Conservation podcast truly is about connecting all of us. I think he's talking to you. So the next time you hear something that makes you laugh out loud or makes you cry, has you question the world a little bit, or just makes you go, hmm... Let us know. We want to include your voice and your thoughts on future episodes. 
Here's how. Take out your smartphone and open the recording app on it. On an iPhone, it's called Voice Memos. On an Android, you can download Smart Voice Recorder or something similar. Hit the record button and hold the phone just like you would if you were talking to us on the other end. Or hold it about four inches from your face. Just don't get too close to the mic. You'll know it's recording because the waveform will start to dance around and the timer will start a ticking. Here's the good part. Tell us whatever you want to tell us. Tell us who you are, what you do all day, what your story is. The point is, we want to hear you. When you hit stop, save the file with something descriptive, like your name and the date. Then open that file right there on the same app and look for a little square with an arrow poking out the top. This is how you share the file. From there, you can select the email app on your device, and if there is something specific you want to talk to us about, just jot a little note down for us. Then email it to info at wildlensinc.org. Boom, it's that easy. Oh, look, here comes one now. Oh my goodness, that Gregory Haddock is just the most charming young man I ever heard. Aw, oh, shucks. Thank you, kind lady. We hope to hear from you soon. When was the IWC formed, and who consisted of its governing members? So the IWC is formed right after the Second World War, and it has the U.S. as part of it, and Norway, Great Britain, the Soviet Union kind of shows up um, unexpectedly at the meeting because they have decided that they're going to become a major whaling company or country. And there's several other countries involved sort of uh, as they get in and out of commercial whaling over the course of the 20th century. And the goal is really to try to prevent what had happened um, during the kind of 19th century uh, whaling boom and, and what was already coming to pass since the, the kind of advent of modern whaling factory ships in the 1920s. Um, and Norway had really been at the forefront of, of these, these factory ships, and then they were picked up by a number of other countries uh, to the point where, you know, if you had margarine as a kid when you were in Britain in the 1930s and 40s, you were probably eating whale fat. It was it was a pretty regular piece of, of feeding some of those countries. But the the conclusion basically was that these industries were going to whale themselves out of business. And the United States was involved because essentially coming out of the Second World War, they were a, a world power. Um, and also because there was a recognition on the part of the United States that part of the, the cause of the Second World War came from countries being impoverished and wanting to prevent that and using whales and kind of the, the correct management of whales as a way to, to help feed countries that were recovering from the Second World War, but to not hunt in such excess that there was a danger of slipping back into some sort of impoverishment. And that, you know, that was a part of a much broader U.S. policy um, in Japan and in Western Europe, where they were sort of assisting with rebuilding efforts to the Marshall Plan. And from the very beginning, it was a, you know, it has these kind of national delegates, but the, the national delegates in basically every case except for the United States, which has no whaling industry, were pretty fully captured by the various national industries. Um, so Norway was coming to try to get the quota to be as large as possible for Norwegian whalers, and Great Britain was coming trying to get the quota as large as possible for British whalers, and Japan was coming trying to get the quota as large as possible for Japan. And that that's part of what kind of forces the, the estimates of whales kind of above what many biologists at the time thought was sustainable. And, and as you say, too, um, 
certainly not something I really was aware of. How many different products, maybe not by today, but um, but by the 50s, 60s, how many different products actually have whale byproduct in them? Margarine, as you said. I think I'd also heard you say um, automotive lube. Yeah. I mean, what what other products can you think of? Um, it was in a lot of cosmetics. So actually, the the what is now the big kind of home goods conglomerate Unilever started off as a whaling company, and whale fat was used in you know soap and lipstick and face cream and things like that. So it kind of works its way into all kinds of consumer markets. And even in the U.S. after the after the Second World War, it's often in dog food and in transmission oil. So there's actually, you can go on the New York Times website and use their, their kind of archive function. And if you search for whale oil, you'll see some op-eds from the 1970s from um, automakers in Detroit who were really worried about the um, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is going to sort of ban the use of whale products imported from abroad in the U.S. Um, and then what are they going to do about their transmissions? Because that's what was making people's cars go. And it was used to lubricate intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, particularly the oil that's in the heads of sperm whales. That's called spermaceti because um, it has extremely low friction. So the, it, it had a, a kind of bizarre set of uses well into the 20th century. Yeah. Killing whales and making bombs out of them. That's it's bizarre, really. Um, yes, it's really bizarre. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the research that you and, and other um, researchers uh, had done on the scene in, in, um, in Russia, can you think of an anecdote or a day or, or a specific time where something happened or something uh, that you uncovered that really shocked you? I think some of it was actually more cumulative than it was, you know, here is this, this one moment where it all, it all crystallizes. Um, and in part realizing just the scale, the scale of the, the whaling program to begin with and the scale of the knowledge about the damage it was doing, that it wasn't, um, you know, it's one thing to run into an industry and be reading through their endless reports and have a sense that they're really oblivious to kind of what what it is that they're doing. And then it's another thing to, you know, run into an industry where it's it's quite clear from what people are talking about pretty openly that they're aware that the numbers of whales in the Pacific um, and off Antarctica are in decline and that you know, they're they're not going to be able to keep going back to the same places over and over again and still make the Soviet plan work. And so that the level of self-awareness combined with the the kind of continuation to do it, I think that was the most haunting thing about it for me because that's the thing. It was shocking, but it was also not shocking because it made me think about the ways in which we're all capable of doing that to various degrees mm-hmm. that, you know, you can continue to participate in something even if you know that it is in some way doing exactly the opposite of what in an ideal world you would be part of. And that, that was much more a just sort of cumulative sense from spending time in these archives and watching it, uh, watching it build up. So the international whaling commission, uh, is, is formed. I'm sorry. Did you say post world war two or in the fifties? Yeah, it's in 1948. I think it's formed then. And the USSR comes and joins, kind of sounds like to everybody's surprise, but shows up, wants to have a, a stake in what this commission does. Um, and all these, despite all these best efforts to try to curb 
whaling in, or at least to do it in a um, responsible and sustainable manner still leads to an 80s ban on all whaling. Is that right? Yes. How is that possible? Did the did the whaling commission not have uh, enough uh, power? Did it not have enough um, uh, control? Or wh- what do you attribute to that? So I think by the 1980s, um, and this is this is kind of a funny point as a historian, where it starts to overlap with the thing that I lived through. Um, and I remember being like a very eager waver of save the whales banners as a kid. That by the 1980s, the sense that whales globally were were imperiled had become so acute and the major western whaling companies had all left the industry and most of them left by the 1960s because they found cheaper ways of getting fat so they moved to palm oil they moved to soy they moved to other kinds of of ways of producing large quantities of of lipids um so Industry opposition to whaling has gone down, and the real holdouts at this point are Japan and the Soviet Union, um, and the global awareness that whales are imperiled has gone up. And it's gone up particularly in the United States um, and Western Europe with a real surge in publicity around what whales are. So this is the point at which you can buy a record that has humpback whale songs on it. There's all sorts of whale-themed media all over the place. So people kind of know whales in a different way. They're not consuming them or they're not consuming them in forms that are visible except as you know charismatic megafauna that are beautiful and intelligent and kind of known for a different different set of attributes um so i think the the combination of the real crisis of whales in the world and at that point the kind of combination of soviet whaling and capitalist whaling in the 20th century has killed three million whales globally wow combines with kind of you know, global upsurge in, in understanding of whales in a really different way. And so this leads to the complete ban, which includes indigenous whaling, as well as kind of mass commercial whaling in the 1980s. When this international cooperation around saving the whale leads to some unlikely marriages, it sounds like. Uh, describe the relationship between Greenpeace and the Pentagon at this time. Yeah, that was that was a really surprising thing. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, it's very strange. It doesn't make a lot of sense because Greenpeace gets its start as an anti-nuclear outfit, and then it's it's when they discover the the way in which sperm oil is used um, in intercontinental ballistic missiles that they decide to to kind of turn their attention to whales. So they start very much as kind of an um, against the military industrial complex organization, and then end up taking coordinates of where Soviet whaling vessels were, and they would whale. At that point, they were often whaling right off of U.S. territorial waters in California and sometimes in Alaska. And they would get those coordinates from the Pentagon. And the Pentagon assumed at this point that the Soviet whaling program was actually just a spy front and that they were hanging out, you know, they were whaling as a pretense, essentially, to spy on the U.S. So it, it was a very strange marriage of interests that the the Pentagon would like the Soviet whaling ships driven away and the, um, the Greenpeace activists wanted to to know where the whale ships were in order to get between the whalers and the, the whales that they were killing. Yeah, it's like this. It's like a Venn diagram with two giant, giant circles and just this tiny little sliver of overlap. That's bizarre. It is very bizarre. Yeah. During during that that international whaling ban, you, you even t- said um, that indigenous communities that have been doing this for ages and ages and ages no longer allowed to do that um 
it feels like when we have these conversations, it's really easy to talk about, uh, you know, what the capitalist uh, structures did, what, you know, um, uh, communist structures did. Uh, but what has been the overall or the lasting impact on indigenous societies because of this obsession and pretty much unhealthy reliance on whaling has, has had? It's had a couple of different impacts. There, there were very kind of acute impacts, particularly with the 19th century commercial whaling for indigenous folks living all around the Bering Strait because so many bowhead whales, which are the species that have been critical to Inupiaq and Yupik and Chukchi societies you know, for thousands of years now, that particular population was drawn down from you know, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 animals to about 3,000. So the ability for these communities to hunt the whales that they depended on went way, way down. And this coincided with a bunch of other population crashes and hunting pressures coming in from the outside in the 1880s and caused real waves of starvation. Um, and often that combined with diseases that were imported by outside whalers. So some communities lost, you know, 50 or 70% of their populations within a decade or two. So really just kind of massive. Oh my God. Um, if you can imagine, you know, losing 50% of the people that, you know, within a decade, and so that, that was kind of the acute shock that, that whaling brought in. But obviously, it was the beginning of a much longer kind of trajectory of both the United States and, and Russia paying attention to the land that it had claimed to around the Bering Strait. Um, and so in the wake of the whalers, in kind of different ways on the, on the Russian and U.S. sides come, you know, state structures, new legal orders, um, compulsory schooling, kind of all of the things that you associate with. Um, a nation trying to kind of turn people who had their own systems of governance and rearing their children and languages and everything else and making them into citizens like everybody else. So kind of radical processes of assimilation. And so, the, you know, these communities have, have gone through both the kind of acute and then these kind of more protracted um, processes of, of colonization over the last 150 years. And in many ways, whales have remained a a real place to practice um, Yupik and Anupiak and Chukchi culture outside of those pressures um, to kind of continue and hold a space for, you know, being Yupik or being Chukchi outside of whatever the state is that's trying to come in and, and change the way of your life. Um, so this ban on on whaling in the 1980s was was really quite severe um, for for these communities because it wasn't just sort of demanding that people not eat whale. So you know, taking away a real form of food, but also was a cutting off a real cultural tie. The whole story is really overwhelming, and um, the impacts are astounding. Any idea what kind of like long-term impact all of this is going to have just on planet Earth or the ecosystem? Yeah, this is a place where I think some of the the kind of marine biology around whales and what they do is really fascinating. Because whales have such a, um, some, some marine biologists call them ecosystem engineers because of the kind of way in which their presence in a particular ecosystem is so impactful. And so, you know, the, the oceans that, you know, you and I grew up knowing are in some ways impoverished because they have never had the number of whales that they would have, you know, 300 years ago or 200 years ago even. 
and certainly not 400 years ago, that we're, we're operating way under the norm for cetacean populations worldwide. And they do all sorts of things from, you know, they move nutrients from the, the ocean floor up the water column. And because they do that, they actually make um, photosynthetic life more abundant because they have more access to iron and phosphorus and nitrogen um, that comes from the seafloor. And there was a some some recent work has been done about the ways in which whale species, because they are so huge, um, actually sequester carbon because um, they build up these sort of giant bodies over, you know, in the case of bowhead whales, they live for a couple of hundred years. And then when they die, they fall to the seafloor and take all that carbon with them and essentially, you know, take it out of circulation so that commercial whaling does exactly the opposite of that, right? It takes the carbon out of the ocean and puts it into atmospheric circulation rather than sequestering it. So having an ocean with more whales in it and trying to somehow recoup that 3 million animals that were killed over the course of the 20th century would have all sorts of impacts on the, on the oceans that, that are around us. And the, and the good news is, I mean, there's, there's always such plentiful bad news in the environmental realms, but some whale species are actually doing really quite well, and bowhead whales are one of them. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, it can be bleak out there. So for for all of it, I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. Um, well, that's a positive note. Uh, maybe maybe we'll leave it right there. Um, Bathsheba, is is there anything else that you want to add to this? Anything that I haven't asked you that you're 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 dying to let listeners know about, um, or or um, anything along those lines? I don't think so. These were really great questions. Well, that was all on accident. So, <laughs> um, how can people reach you? Um, you can find me all over the internets. Um, my handle on Twitter is at brdemuth. Um, that's also my website and my Instagram. And if you want lots of photos of Alaska, that's all that's on my Instagram these days. Um, and my book is called Floating Coast: An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. And it is a history, but it's also written for everybody. So it's not a super technical. Um, hopefully, there's there's lots of interesting narrative in there, um, kind of regardless of what your your usual history reading diet is. Awesome, awesome, uh, Bathsheba Demuth. Thank you so much for making time for Eyes on Conservation today. I really appreciate it, and I wish you all the best in the launch of this next book. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Best wishes, and um, try to stay warm. Yes, I will. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Special thanks to Bathsheba DeMuth for taking the time to share with us about her experiences and research from her book, Floating Coast, and recounting her findings around Soviet whaling in the Bering Straits. For information about Professor DeMuth, visit her website at www.brdemuth.com. And for some seriously stunning images from the Arctic, check out her Instagram also at brdemuth. And she's also on Twitter at brdemuth. For a full list of this episode's links and contributors, including music used in this show, please visit the show notes page at www.wildlensinc.org slash EOC. I'm Gregory Haddock, reminding you there is no planet B. Take care.